This is the story of Stanley Ipkiss. Stanley, you are the nicest guy. <laughs> really, you are. Yeah. His job is at the bank. You're 40 minutes late. Now, that's the same as stealing. I'm sorry, Mr. Dickey. It, it'll never happen again. He loves his dog. Come on, Ron. Give him to me. Drop it. He's polite to his landlord. Ipkiss, do you have any idea what time it is? You know, Mrs. Peenman. What? And the most exciting thing in his life are his pajamas. But now, all that is about to change. Because Stanley Ipkiss is not the man he used to be. Smoking! Jim Carrey is... The Mask. Ooh, somebody stop me! Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 91st episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. If it came from a comic and had theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing The Mask. And with me today to discuss a film that influenced not only pop culture, but also helped bring about the resurgence of swing music in the 90s, are two wonderful, wonderful people. On one side, the fabulous Christine Peruski. Hey, Christine, how are you doing today? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. Uh, well, I fake it. <laughs> I don't do it the proper way, so don't be too impressed. Well, I, 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 I definitely am impressed because I can't do that to save my life. And on the other, of course, the amazing Joe Ferris. Hey, Joe, how are you today? Smoking. Nice. Well, you guys definitely sound like you are prepared for sure. So today we are discussing The Mask from 94, directed by Charles Russell, who my listeners might know from A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, the remake of The Blob, The Scorpion King, and Collateral. The screenplay was by Michael Fallon and Mark Verheiden, and the original score was by Randy Edelman. And on estimate to print days money, this movie cost $41 million to make and made roughly $630. Two million at the box office, so quite the smash for sure. I so, yes, indeedy. So, Christine, actually, starting here with you, and so we say first impressions. What are your thoughts on this film? Were you a fan of it way back when? And you know, rewatching it, you know, years later, how do you feel about this film? Oh, I loved this film when it first came out. I I have the soundtrack. You know, I had the actual CD, and. Shut up. <laughs> and I, I listened to it on repeat. Um, rewatching this movie, it brought me back to the swing craze that swept the 90s. And I got swept up in that craze. And I would welcome it back. I think uh, people need to learn how to dance properly again. How to dance with each other instead of like dancing next to each other. I mean, the Dancing with the Stars can only do so much. There's got to be some swing clubs out there. But um, watching this movie uh, after... The discussions we've had on this podcast, I, I know this was based on a comic, but just like Scott Pilgrim was very video game, this is all cartoon. And it's just absolutely silly. And I loved, I, I found some interesting trivia bits about the movie, you know, that a lot of that came from Jim Carrey himself, from his love of cartoons. And, uh, you know, you mentioned how much it cost to make this movie. Uh I think Jim Carrey actually saved them a lot of money making this movie because they were intending on using a lot more CGI on the mask character. But Jim Carrey, being who he is, managed to get the ridiculousness of the character all on his own. And they had to use very little CGI uh, 
in the, in, instead of, you know, what he did. And mm. uh, he also, those ridiculous teeth, they were only intending to use those for uh, the silent scenes where he didn't have to speak, but he learned how to speak with the teeth in. Wow. Well, that's that's definitely very impressive for sure. Mm. And, uh, and when it comes to you, Joe, were you a, a fan of this uh, as a kid growing up? And, and how do you feel about it today? Oh, I loved it when uh, we rented it. I'd never got seen in the theater, sadly. But it, it's a fun, energetic, and all-around good movie. Um, it, granted, it doesn't really follow all aspects of the comic book that came before it. Mm-hmm. But even though it doesn't follow, it does create its own unique viewing experience that we only now are starting to see today. And it's just great the only thing that gets me a little bit is a lot of the 90s tropes uh Mm. they they do shine a little too bright with this movie but it was the time when it was made so you gotta cut it some slack they didn't know any better (laughs) true i mean so were you go ahead christine oh it's also uh it was hard for me to distinguish like is this the stupid 90s trope or is it because this movie is very cartoony and exaggerated I, I couldn't really tell where the line was it was very blurry so i tended to be a little more forgiving on that aspect as well mm-hmm. no because i in fact i was actually curious joe because you mentioned the comics so were you familiar with the dark horse stuff and what what they'd done with the character before the, fil- the film had been made no, definitely not. Uh, I only more recently learned about the differences between the movie and the comic. I haven't actually read the comic fully yet, just maybe a few pages here and there. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm right there with the, with the two of you. I mean, this was also a favorite of mine as a kid growing up, and I and I also actually own the soundtrack on cassette, so I'm I'm even older than wow. Christine there, <laughs> Yes, actually, Only actually, on, that, and on that note, you know, yes. I'm actually older than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually ended up finding it because I said to myself, as soon as I was watching this, I'm like, you know, yeah, that moment where you think to yourself, where is that kind of uh, something that you have related to a certain film or whatever you haven't seen? watched or or touched in ages and i was suddenly going nuts kind of going where is that tape and everything else i was kind of turning my my uh, apartment upside down to find it finally found it but uh, it won't play of course you still have it (laughs) yes sadly it's kind of kind of got the whole garbled thing going on now so it doesn't really play so i'm like okay i'll just put it on the shelf and just leave it there you know did you try putting a pencil in it and twisting (laughs) <laughs> I did, but I'm like, no. You actually get that moment where it's kind of like, oh. I'm like, I'm like, no. It got. I, I played it to death. This so. is why cassettes didn't last. This is why VHS didn't last. Yes. because that just doesn't. It doesn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 how it goes with with analog, I suppose. But uh, but yeah, I, mean, I I really enjoyed it, and I and I after that, of course, I ended up purchasing a digital copy of the album, and. And just like you guys, I mean, I do enjoy the transitions from the jazz to the blues to the mambo to R&B. It's just fantastic. And the comics are very different from the film. And in actual fact, the mask or big face, as the entity is known in the Dark Horse publication, is very much an evil presence, which corrupts whoever wears the mask, regardless of their intentions, and turns it to evil and brutality and slowly drives whoever uses it to insanity. And that's actually what is shown in the comics. But understandably, I guess, when you're adapting a comic that dark, they probably decide to make it more of a... I, I mean, I saw it this way, almost like a super soldier serum with like a zany twist in mask form. Kind of good becomes great, bad becomes worse. And 
I mean, it brings, I guess, your more repressed side, at least in Stanley's case, but they don't, in the comics, and I'll get to this later, Stanley actually does some pretty bad things in the comics. Maybe someday we may actually get the true to form big head from the comics with the darker twist, seeing as we are, you know, I think in the era where you probably can do that. And something else I should mention, the Loki deal is completely made up for the film. And the fact the mask... And also the fact that the mask only works at night is also for the mo- only for the movie. As mm. in the comics, it works day or night. But I guess maybe it wouldn't, it wouldn't maybe allow for breaks and maybe we wouldn't get that comedic scene between Stanley and Dr. Newman, which is priceless. So I suppose, <laughs> so I suppose they had to do that. Um, so yeah, let's get to our characters on the board then, guys. Starting with our hero in this case, Jim Carrey, of course, as Stanley Ipkiss, the mask. And I think we could also throw in the, the wonderful, wonderful dog that is Milo, played by Max. So starting actually here with you, Joe, what did you make of Stanley Ipkiss and of Milo? Stanley, he's a decent guy, decent job, uh, but he's definitely the guy that always gets picked last. Nice guy, finishing last, and... He's insecure nerd, loves his cartoons, and I guess he's not a bad character. Um, I like how over the film we do see him evolve and grow outside of the mask. So when we still see him in the beginning, he's very not confident. But by the end, he is just, he's almost like he becomes Jim Carrey. And it's pretty good. Uh, The mask... I really like the mask character because he is a living cartoon, and it's so fun to see that. You don't see too much of that outside of maybe like Roger Rabbit or other movies similar. And they did a pretty good job with the practical uh, makeup on the mask as well. Um, I would definitely say practical over digital. The only downside is every once in a while, if you look closely at the back of Jim Carrey's neck, you will see it lift up in some scenes and it it's quick but you'll notice it that's for sure mm. i mean were you actually a fan of like the whole tex avery stuff and uh, and you know because obviously there is a big callback to a lot of the tex avery cartoons which stanley is a fan of were you a fan of those tex avery cartoons i did watch some tex avery i think i watched way more looney tunes though because uh when we were younger that was the one that they played a lot more of because i guess it was more family friendly for the cartoon networks mm. Yeah, because I suppose Tex Avery tends to be a little bit more risque, if you will, when it comes to some of the things. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, definitely great stuff. And when it, and when it, and you also, I guess, being you both, you and Christina, I suppose, being dog people, what did you make of Milo? <laughs> oh, Milo's fun. I like Milo. I wish we had one, but we do already have two dogs here. And enough butthead to go around me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't need a Jack Russell rushing around driving you nuts. Oh, well, no. you know, I gotta be honest. I, I wanted a Jack Russell for a very long time after I saw this movie because it was tiny and jumpy and just high energy and adorableness. I, really good at Frisbee. And really good at Frisbee, yes. <laughs> Well, apparently they are super, very high intelligent dogs. I mean, my, one of my best friends actually owns two. And they are, it's crazy because they actually are, you know, kind of employed to find things rather than hunt, if you will. It's like, 
um, I, when it comes to my cat, they will actually look for my cat. They won't attack her, but they'll just sort of point, just stand still once they've found her, waiting for whoever it is to come around saying, oh, good boy, good, good dogs, you found the cat. And that's kind of what <laughs> they do. They kind of search dogs, if you will. And Christine, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on, on Stanley and, uh, and Milo? Well, I can't imagine anybody other than Jim Carrey playing this part. Mm, the man yes. is a living cartoon. Um, and I, I really like Stanley. He is the nice guy, and he doesn't ask anything of anyone, which is why he gets walked all over. Poor guy. But Ow. And I think the mask was actually great for him, at least in this instance. Uh, uh, like, if they had stuck with the comic, it would have been a much darker film. Mm. But for this... It was a good thing for him because it gave him a taste of what it's like to be confident, to not care about the consequences. And it, it starts to rub off on him. You could see it when he tells off his boss, which is, I think, the the first time he really just stands up to somebody without really caring what's going to happen out of that. And it was, it was a beautiful turnaround. Uh, even his best friend liked seeing that. Um and I, I, I did love the bit in the shrink's office, the physicality involved. I mean, how did Ben Stein keep a straight voice, uh, straight face? <laughs> <laughs> I, I very much agree, yes. <laughs> but Milo is, is really the star of this film. It's all about Milo. <laughs> <laughs> it is, for sure. And actually, you know, seeing what the mask get, uh, gets up to and stuff, did you actually consider him? a hero per se or you know looking at it now maybe with adult eyes think to yourself some of the choices he makes might be a little bit questionable oh of course they are i mean considering what the mask was in the comics mm -hmm. uh, i think the they took the most toned down version you could get with it um and i think uh it's kind of like a drug like you mm -hmm. you can't exactly be held responsible for what you're doing under the influence of this stuff. It's not, you're not, you're not really in control. The only control you have is whether or not to put the mask on. And I think like right at the beginning, well, at least the first night he didn't know what he was getting into. So you can't really blame him for any of the stuff he did that first time, but it was getting steadily worse. I think, uh, after that first time, like robbing a bank. Um, <laughs> but really, I don't think he did anything too bad. He never, he didn't permanently harm anybody mm. unless you count flushing the bad guy. God knows what happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there, I suppose you can, you can probably, I suppose, forgive him. Cause like he's getting rid of the bad guy, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of right with you both there. Cause he's very much your run the mill, nice guy. And I think he's often reminded about this whenever he's rebuffed, you know, especially when it comes to women. And I have seen this with people that they're like, you know, they're best people in the world and they do everything they can, but women are like, you're such a nice guy. It's kind of like, I'm not into you, but you know, I'm, you're, so, you're great. You know, it's like, uh, you know, guys don't really like to hear that. But anyways, it seems like he just can't get a break no matter what he does. And I suppose he might have been very rel relatable to kind of all the dateless wonders out there who have a heart of gold and always passed up for some reason or another. You know, again, constantly being reminded of what great people they are. And he, he very much also seems to be the only decent person in Edge City, which I suppose aptly named probably because everybody's kind of on the edge, I guess, as everybody else are either gangsters or they're incredibly selfish and self-centered. And 
I think we do see that he would like to speak out either against the injustices he receives or be more charismatic with the ladies, as we see him also fantasize in the dream sequence with Tina. But he's just not able to muster up the courage to do something or take his life into his hands. And no surprise, he actually comes across the mask through an act of kindness. Because he wants to try and save what appears in the dark as being a drowning man, or at least a man in peril. And I guess when the mask does eventually come into his life and he begins to use it, it does, of course, play up on his inner desires and, of course, his love for Tex Avery cartoons and pop culture. And I don't know about you guys. I mean, I feel we do get some hints of the comics in which the mask punishes those who have wronged him, but he'll never mm-hmm. openly murder anybody. Well, Though we need a proctologist. True. Yes. yes. I mean, because <laughs> I, I, I guess if you look at this with adult eyes, like you were pointing out, Christine, because he does inflict some serious harm to the shady car dealers. And, yes. Yeah. And he could have actually killed the thugs he shoots at with the balloon Tommy gun, which in, in the comics actually does. Added to this, when it comes to women, I mean, I feel he straddles the line. I mean, between sexed up, harmless, wacky guy and rapey creeper, because uh, you know. But you know, t- t- you mean was- like Pepe Le Pew? <laughs> <laughs> I think even even more so because, but at the same time, I suppose. Tina never seems particularly concerned or frightened by him. I mean, for the most part, she doesn't really see him as a threat, and she maybe sees him as just some wacky guy with a green face. I mean, you know, coming also from your perspective, Christine, did you find the way that he maybe acted towards Tina might have been a little bit rapey? Uh, a little bit. It was really just over-enthusiastic and way too quick, and it was just more inappropriate you know like someone who doesn't know what they're doing and just learned everything they knew from cartoons (laughs) (laughs) i suppose i mean which which is a you know a good example of why we shouldn't have those extremes in cartoons you know people are like oh they're just yeah it's just for kids kids don't know what's going on like yeah but they're learning (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose it's a case of monkey see, monkey do, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I appreciate also that there's a nod also to the comics where Stanley's own personality changes as the movie moves forward. As he does become more sure of himself, like even you were pointing out, Joe, and in how he talks to Tina. But also, like you were saying, Christine, when he finally explodes in the face of his supervisor, Mr. Dickey. I mean, you could see it. I, I could. I mean, I could see it as either the mask personality rubbing off on him, or either his confidence in himself growing n- after knowing what he's like as the mask. I suppose it could work kind of both ways because what happens in the comics is he becomes more and more of a psychopath and just goes totally crazy. And um, but and I suppose it could maybe be a bit of both. And also, very much seems like Milo is the only true friend that Stanley has. And and I have to hand it to the folks who actually trained Max because he is just mm. just does such a wonderful job in this and very much I think has his own personality. So you know, interesting it's a- tidbit though it, he he does come off is extremely well trained. But one thing I found was that uh, the scene where he's trying to put all the money back in the closet and he's using the frisbee and the dog grabs onto the frisbee. Um, that was uh, not scripted. That was not what the dog was supposed to be doing. And what oh. we're seeing is Jim Carrey's actual frustration with the dog because <laughs> it was not well, quite tw- well-trained enough. 
Oh, okay. Well, that, well, that's yeah. that, that's uh, interesting for sure. Yeah, and I, I suppose I guess Jim kind of ran with it and just uh, played it up for what oh, it worked great. I think it was perfect. The oh. dog's really good at improv. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, I so, just want to put yeah. one little note out there for all of you nice guys who keep getting uh, told what a great guy you are, and then you know not getting a date. The thing you're missing is confidence. You know, don't let people walk all over you. You can be nice and confident. That's what girls are looking for. Hey, they, folks, take notes. You know, that's the very much. Uh, you make a great point there, Christine. So, and actually, speaking of uh, of women, let's, let's look at Tina in this case. Of course, Stanley's paramour in this film. Here we have 21-year-old Cameron Diaz at her film debut as Tina Carlyle. And folks, if you're wondering what has happened to Cameron Diaz since then, she retired from acting as of March of 2018 because she's decided that she's it's no longer for her. She's happy doing other stuff. So we won't be seeing Cameron back on the screen anytime soon. It's a shame, but I guess that's that's the way it goes. So, and actually starting here with you, Christine, what did you make of, uh, of Tina Carlyle? And, you know, in hindsight seeing a debuting Cameron Diaz on the screen. Well, apparently she turned 21 while they were filming and because they were doing night shoots, she couldn't go and have the traditional 21 celebration. So they had a little bit of a celebration for her on set, which was great. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I I like her, um, but she's honestly a victim of cliche writing. You know, she's the bad guy's girlfriend, apparently against her will. She probably got the singing job because she agreed to go out with him and has to get saved by the hero. Now, I do like that, uh, you know, you tend to get the the really hot chick is really nasty. You know, the guy falls for Mm -hmm. her because she's hot, but it turns out she's a horrible person. I like the bit of a twist where she's actually a decent person as well. I just don't like that you know, the cliche, she has to get saved. And I, it makes me wonder if, uh, the, the mask is like taking over everything around it, making the whole world into sort of a cartoon story because everything seems to fall into those perfect roles that you get in a cartoon. Well, I, and, and I think that's a, that's a great point because for example, I mean, going really back to where the, the, we get the Cuban Pete scene, where all the police and the dancing out of nowhere and such, I think it very much strengthens that point that you make because they suddenly get swept over by this. Granted, okay, we're looking at somewhat of a comedic film, if you will, but I think it might even emphasize the fact that that's maybe the mask's power is he can actually have other people live this fantasy, you know, in his vicinity, if you will. Yeah, uh, I, I think, think so. There's uh, the one point where. Uh, he is, accepts the Oscar and yeah. does the the Sally Field thing, and you see like MST3K figures come up, up at the bottom, you know, applauding, and the bad guys suddenly get really nervous, like, oh, there's people watching. Oh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, why would you care? Yeah, and also, it, 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 the guy's kind of crying when he does the acceptance speech. It's like, yeah, <laughs> he evidently is able to, able to fool everybody. It's uh, it's fabulous. And, uh, well, uh, Christine, were you actually a fan, or are you a fan of Cameron Diaz's work? And, I mean, did she seem... Uh, did you, did you did you kind of buy this this role? Or she said, could you oh, tell that it was her was first really role? Good. I thought she was really good in this role. Um, I haven't been a fan of everything she's done. Uh, there was... There's something about Mary. It's the type of movie that I hate. 
And uh, <laughs> shortly after that, um, people actually, like, a bunch of strangers, like, random strangers would tell me that I look like Cameron Diaz. And I, first off, I can't see it. Secondly, I think her mouth is too wide. <laughs> <laughs> and thirdly, all I could think about was that horrible scene with the stuff in her hair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is sadly what everybody remembers that movie for. Yes. <laughs> All you got to... One of those things I hate about movies like that. You know, it's mm. just toilet humor. <laughs> it is, <But> literally. <laughs> for yeah. her first movie and the fact that she had to audition 12 times for this, I liked her in this. Uh, I, I just don't like the way the character's written. But she did a great job, despite the fact that she wasn't actually singing. Yes, indeed. This is, that's that's definitely a great point. And and uh, Joe, when it comes to you, uh, what did you think of Tina Carlisle and uh, Cameron Diaz at her debut here? Uh, first off, hello, nurse. <laughs> that very first scene we see of her, I can only think of the cartoon Animaniacs when that comes up. It's just every time I just <laughs> yes. laugh because of that. Um, for being her first movie, she does actually a very good job. She seems like she's almost better than ninety percent of the people on staff. Uh, she she comes off as professional and doesn't really have a bad scene. Um, I like that she starts out as the evil, you know, the evil bad guy's girlfriend, and then she kind of gradually turns to the green side. But, <laughs> yeah, I do agree with Christine when it comes to the uh, the writing. It does feel a little cliched, and that she needs to be saved by the hero in the end. But, again, it's a cartoon. This movie is a living cartoon. So it does feel like it fits in with the movie. Um, if they did a modern interpretation of it, we'd probably see her character do a bit more and have more spots in the movie, just doing anything, maybe more action. Well, weren't you saying that we actually have seen a modern interpretation of this? Yeah, we kind of have. Uh, I mean, Deadpool is almost the modern equivalent of the mass. True. Maybe yeah. more inclined with what the uh, comic book, with the more of the gore and the actual violence. But you never know. <laughs> yes, even though I'm trying to imagine Ryan Reynolds playing this role. I don't know if he could do it. Mm. It would be a very weird movie, I well, think, if he you, did it. You know, I, yeah. I said earlier, I can't imagine anybody else playing this role, but if uh, he may not be able to get the physicality yeah. as well as Jim Carrey, but I think Ryan Reynolds has the personality for it. He probably does. Yeah. Oh yes, and of course, all the off-the-cuff stuff that he his his off-the-cuff comedy would definitely work with. That. I guess it's just maybe the rubbery face that J that Jim Carrey has is just, you know, it's very unique. I think it's um yeah, it's, it's he was he's one of one of a kind for sure. And you know, uh, when it comes to I suppose my thoughts on uh, on Tina, aside from obviously having to play the bomb the blonde bombshell and the gangster's main squeeze, I mean, I have to hand it to her at her actorial debut as. Just like you guys, I agree with you. She plays the role to perfection, and she does emote when she has to, aside from, you know, just looking hot and sexy. So I'm glad that, that she actually did show folks that she was more than just a pretty face. The character itself, I think, is obviously fully aware of the weapons she has at her disposal and the power she can hold over men because of it. I mean, be it when she's actually working for and with Dorian to when she does that turn on him. And, I mean, I suppose it was a shame that she did become the damsel in distress towards the end of the film. But, hey, if it weren't for her, Stanley would not have gotten the mask back and defeated Dorian because she plays the whole thing of, you know, give me one last kiss. And through that, she's able to, you know, 
administer a perfect kick to where the mask flies off and then we're able to kind of get our heroes having the mask back. So I guess she does play an important role there. Funny story, Vanessa Williams was considered for the role of Tina, and I could actually see her doing that. And, of course, she actually does sing the song You Would Be My Baby on the soundtrack. Well, of course, as Christine was pointing out, when we actually see Tina sing, it's actually uh, Susan Boyd who does the singing voice. But uh, it works. I mean, she does good lip syncing, too. I mean, I could buy that that was that is Cameron Diaz's voice. I'm like, OK, it works. So let's get to a character who is also one of the main antagonists in the comics and also in the animated TV show and his terrible partner, we have, of course, Peter Rygert as Lieutenant Mitch Kellaway, who my listeners will probably know from Animal House, Local Hero, and The Sopranos. And we, have, and we also have Jim Dugan as Detective Doyle. So when it comes to our duo, our cop duo here of Mitch Kellaway and Detective Doyle, Joe, what did you make of them? Uh, very 90s characters, uh, <laughs> almost like a 90s Laurel and Hardy or something, because they just, they're kind of bumbling fools. Uh, mm. But one thing, Detective Oil, he's all about the food, and I am down with that. <laughs> and I'm really upset that he didn't get his onion rings, because, man, he looked like he wanted them. Yes. Um, I mean, we do have Mitch, and yes, he is a hardened cop of many years. You can tell that's what he's playing. Um, but he doesn't really, I don't feel like he's much of anything, outside of just, like, he's the guy that's just following the mask. Uh I don't know. It, I guess I think he, maybe he's trying too hard. Yeah, mm. it, it's it almost feels like it, that's one of the '90s tropes of the cop that keeps failing to get the guy he's trying to get. Yeah, and he's perpetually angry, and you know, he starts off angry, and you're not even sure what he's angry about. He's just generally grumpy, grouchy, and I mean, right off the bat, one of the first things he does is insult this complete stranger who lives next door and. Tells him what ridiculous pajamas he has on. I'd wear those pajamas, thank you very much. <laughs> you and me both, Joe. I think those, yes. I, those I think those pajamas are actually pretty cool. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, heck, I, don't, I mean, I've, I've seen weird. I mean, if, if uh, Kellaway is so shocked at these pajamas, believe you me, I've seen weirder pajamas. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. And yeah, and um, Christine, you make, you make some wonderful points there. I mean, so I suppose. You, you're kind of uh, with Joe when it comes to just the, the way these characters were used. Well, Would you like to have seen more of them? Like I said, this a cartoony was going around. These were cops out of a cartoon. You know, you got the grumpy one and you got the, the wait a minute, they're pinky in the brain. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, just like the one who's smart and kind of angry and the other one who's bright and bumbling and doesn't really understand what's happening. Yeah. But, <laughs> and, but likes food. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to me like Kellaway is probably one of the only semi-competent cops when it comes to Edge City's police force, as everybody else seems either completely clueless or they're just terrible at their jobs. And well, I think there's something broken in him because he's the only one who didn't uh, get sucked into the song and dance number. <laughs> True. Mm. And, and also you maybe wonder how many of these are actually on the, the mob's payroll as well, I'm assuming, because mm. I, guess, I guess it's probably to be assumed that... Uh, Should we say the mob pretty much owns the town in general? So it could also be that. And I I did enjoy Kellaway's frustration. For one, with Doyle, 
and just at the police force in general, as he's the one who he is the only one who actually comes to the conclusion that Stanley and the mask are one and the same because of the crazy pajamas. But at the same time, he doesn't really act upon it too much because he goes to see Stanley. He's like, you know, I found this at the Coco Bongo, and you know, is this you and all this kind of stuff. But then he pretty much leaves. I mean, he does follow him around, but he could have done more. Granted, he does arrest Stanley towards the end of the film, but it just seems like he's very kind of hapless as well. And Doyle, well, Doyle is a lost cause, plain and simple. As much as I love the guy, he's just, he's just hilarious. But you, I do, I do hope he did get his onion rings in the end, but uh, just like you, Joe, yes. because yeah, I'm like, and, and now I want onion rings, but oh, well, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well yeah. uh, another problem I have with uh, Lieutenant Calloway is uh, something that probably would not fly in films right now. The cops' eagerness to just shoot at people. Mm. I mean, you stop or I'll shoot. The guy is unarmed. He's running away. He's literally on the other side of a car. He starts shooting and then tells everybody else to start shooting at him. That is not what you do. It's just not what you do. And it was also a period, I suppose, the 90s were when the cops were usually rather incompetent in general. They always seemed to be uh, depicted as being terrible at their jobs. Um, and unless it was sort of an action film featuring two cops, but usually the rest of the force was awful. They were either terribly corrupt or they were just bumbling fools. So I suppose it also plays in with that as well. And you'd often get that or almost same thing with soldiers. Sometimes they'd actually be seen as so incompetent. So I, I guess it, it plays well, into that trope. There was a trope I started to pick up on with uh, cop TV shows. When mm. the FBI would show up, the FBI was always incompetent. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? Ha why is this happening? Where does this come from? And, of course, if you watched a show about the FBI, the cops were incompetent. Like, yeah. It's why, usually... Why can't people just be good at their jobs? Yeah, that's right. It, it, uh, but I suppose that's, that was kind of just the, the 90s way of doing it, which is strange. Luckily, they've kind of moved on since then. But, uh, but I'm right there with you, for sure. So let's look at two other characters who play their parts in Stanley's life for good or ill, and one who pretty much disappears... When she's done her dirty work for Dorian, we have, of course, Richard Jenny as Charlie Schumacher, who my listeners will probably know from Platypus Man. I absolutely love Platypus Man. And Amy Yazbek as Peggy Brandt, who has been in such things as a TV version of Splash, the first two Problem Child movies, remember those folks, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and Dracula, Dead and Loving It. So, Christine, actually, yeah, starting here with you, what did you make of uh, Charlie and Peggy? Well, um, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Charlie is uh, your typical uh, best friend in a 90s movie. You know, he he seems to be the ladies' man, but honestly, he doesn't seem to land a lady. He just has a... He, it, I think he's a, a sweet talker, but his uh, his moves don't last more than like one or two nights because where are these ladies later on? I think he's he just enjoys playing the field and he knows how to get that done. But um, is he going to be able to land a woman when he's ready to settle down? Who knows? Um, and if he was a really good friend, he would have noticed that his friend didn't make it into the club with him. It's just wrong. Maybe, you know, show him how to get into the club, hand him some cash. Yes. Poor guy's got, a, got his car in the shop and he's getting bled dry out of that one. <laughs> 
Yeah. And did you have any thoughts on Peggy? Peggy, uh, you know, I want to see this condo that she's so fond of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, apparently, like, she was really into Stanley. Like, she loved his letter. And, you know, she really looked like she was, you know, ready to start dating him. And then there was the offer of $50,000 to turn him over. Okay, yeah, I need, I'm I'm not making enough money at the paper, so I'll take it and I'll turn over this guy. Like, wow. That must be a good condo. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, 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 were you kind of surprised that she sort of, sort of disappeared after that? Not really. I mean, she got what she wanted. And she really, there was nothing to be gained by sticking around after that. She betrayed this guy that she really liked. She knew it was a, a bad move to make. But, I mean, what more she, was she going to do by sticking around except possibly get herself into more trouble? Mm. Yeah, I mean, because I suppose maybe it's me loving revenge stories, maybe seeing, you know, have her come up in, in somewhere, either being, you know, kind of clapped in irons and sent away or something. But, you know, she's just like, oh, you know, I got my money. I'm off. And that that was pretty much the rest. All we saw of Amy Asbeck after that. And uh, uh, Joe, when it comes to you, what were your thoughts on uh, on Charlie and Peggy? Uh, Charlie, he's definitely a playboy release, man. He's that kind of guy that another trope uh but he doesn't really get far with it i mean come on he's he's not going anywhere he's definitely gonna be stuck in that job of being the friend at the bank and not really going any further than that but maybe one day he'll kind of we sneak himself into a life of i don't know more uh but peggy she's uh She's strange because she starts out being all nice and then she just turns into a bad guy. And my question is, how'd she learn about this big money? If she's supposed to be a good person at the the newspaper, I don't know. It's just it's kind of weird. Apparently, she's a good reporter. She Apparently. finds things out. I guess, <laughs> but it's just it, it almost seems odd that the uh, the the bad guy's girlfriend turns good and the good girl turns. bad bad kind of it was a weird Mm. twist that does kind of work for the movie but it's just it's a weird twist you don't see much um and she should definitely get into acting because oscar worthy performance when she's uh getting stanley uh at the what was that uh, sitting on the papers paper plant where they were making the papers yeah print yeah she should definitely get an oscar for that because you could tell it oh she loves him so much and then all done (laughs) I'm just yeah. trying to keep you here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Amy Yazbek is definitely a great, great actress. Sure, and funny enough, this film was actually nominated for a couple of Oscars, more for the special effects stuff. But, I mean, you think back and you think what an influential movie. I mean, I'm sure it probably would have ruffled quite a few feathers had it walked away with other uh, awards. But, um, but yeah, Amy Yazbek was fabulous in this. And I absolutely had loved her in Robin Hood, Men in Tights. And yes, folks, I have seen the two Problem Child films, but I've kind of since then removed them from my mind because I loved them as a kid. But I think watching them now, I probably have a lot of issues with those films. But yeah, I, Peggy is, I, I, I felt the same way because I, I remember, I still remember my reaction of, from, of this character as a, as a kid. Because like, oh, you know, it's great. Stanley might actually find somebody that gets him. And then, no, it just kind of, it turns out to be completely unexpected that she's actually working for the mob. And you and I'm right with you, Joe. You think to yourself, how did Dorian get his clutches into her? I mean, it, that's why I'm going with the mob pretty much knows everybody 
and either they they went to the I don't know it's it's weird. I think to, they have a bulletin board. You know, oh. you just just walk up to see what uh, what new jobs have been posted. Do you, do you pull the phone number. From yeah, the paper? a little phone number tab. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Yeah, because. Because other than that, I, I thought it was just so nice the, the way that because I think she was one of the few people who actually had some nice words for Stanley. And you can see that he's, he feels so validated by it. But then obviously it all goes to hell. And but hey, he, he gets the girl in the end. But I was kind of kind of saddened by that. And, you know, Charlie, yes, he's definitely not the friend you'd like to have because. One, he always seems to, to to any woman that walks into the office, he immediately goes for it and he's kind of like telling Stanley, oh, you should get yourself a girlfriend and what have you. And then he's the first in line, no matter what attractive woman walks into the office. <laughs> and then, yeah, the, the club scene. I, I totally agree, Christine. The whole fact of he's brought these two girls, because obviously I suppose they wanted to do a double date. Mm-hmm. He walks into the club and yeah, and, and Stanley's left outside. And then the next day, Charlie gives him hell. Was like, "Where were you?" And like, dude, you know, you kind of, you kind of did just you look like, outside in the gutter? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. So you you think this up? Yeah, Charlie is an odd one. But to, and uh, and of course we do get to see him kind of chasing after the mask uh, at the end yeah. of the film. <laughs> him and <laughs> Which, Milo. Yes, exactly. Between him and Milo, it's, it's going to be an, an interesting chase for sure. But uh, by I mean, the, the it was Richard Jenny did a great job. I mean, he's a, he's a great comedic actor. So I, I very much enjoyed the way he he played this character. Granted, it is very nineties cheese, but it was so so much fun to watch. So let's get to our villains then, to our big bad, and it is it isn't actually the mob boss and owner of the Coco Bongo Rico, played by Orestes Matasena. It's actually his. Underling, Dorian Terrell, played by Peter Green, whom all Pulp Fiction fans will know from, of course, Pulp Fiction. And I also remember him from Training Day as well. So, Joe, starting here with you, I guess we can look at uh, at Rico as well. But when it came to our bad guys, what did you think of, of Rico and, uh, and Dorian? Um, well, something's weird with the uh, the main boss because... yes. If they didn't introduce him as the main boss, you would have just thought that he was just another henchman that get that got killed last during the fight. And I just I don't understand why they made such a big deal about this character. You could have cut him out, and it would have just been Dorian. And Dorian himself is just a typical '90s bad guy. He just wants money and power. Cool, great, but I mean. It doesn't really stand out. I mean, I guess again, it's a cartoon. What are they going to want more? Money and power. Through the top of the cartoon food mm-hmm. chain for bad guys, unless they have a mustache to twirl. But that's about it. <laughs> um, um, but with Dorian, uh, I, I question also his motives because again, if he wants money, why does he have all his henchmen shoot the pig that had the money? All stuffed in it. it you're gonna yeah. get holes on the money it's worthless then come <laughs> on dude make up your mind here and then his makeup when he puts the mask on kind of progressively gets worse throughout the movie like when you first see it, it looks really good and but the last scene where they have the close-up where him and uh, Cameron Diaz are right about the kiss right before that the makeup just looks so terrible like they just kind of gave up they're like this is the end of the movie we don't care we're just gonna half-ass it let's get this done <laughs> i guess the budget was gone by that point but yeah, it was um, a late night late it night. was a late night yeah. 
They're like, oh, come on, we, we want to go to bed. You know, it's like five in the morning, you know, because <laughs> they're probably shooting at ungodly hours, as, yes. as, as, as tends to happen in, in film. But, yeah, speaking actually of the mask version of Dorian, I mean, did you did you like the this, should we say, the what it could look, what the dark side of the mask could look like? You mean the red skull version of the mask? Yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but it's green, though, so it would be green skull? Green skull. Green skull. We got it. Um, I, I did like Dorian as the uh, the masked version of himself. Uh, it definitely brought more to him. It, it just made him, you know, made him what he really was. He was the big green bad guy, and it just really heightened them, I guess. Mm-hmm. And Christine, when it comes to you, uh, what were your thoughts on uh, on Rico and Dorian? Well, I thought the. Uh... Uh, the same thing, you know, there's no need to have anybody else but Dorian. I don't know why he needed to be an underling to some other guy. He was barely in the movie. Yeah. And, like, they they have one, I keep using the word cliche, but it's the best word I got for this. Mm-hmm. You know, the cliche threatening scene where he does something ridiculous, like make him hold a tea in his mouth while he swings. And, <laughs> and like... I don't know, man. I think if you actually hit his face, you uh, wouldn't have done such a good shot. So I don't know why that hurt him. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't understand the point of that. Like, really, if if he had, you know, was aiming for his face, he probably wouldn't have even hit the target with the golf ball. But uh, I think they were just going through the book of, you know, cliche villain routines and Mm. like saying, oh, what else can we do? Oh, I like this one. We should do this one. Yeah. And and then, I, I, I don't know, I feel like he was thrown in there because they felt Dorian needed to have a little more depth. And mm. that, you know, he was trying to be overly ambitious. And uh, that's how he got mixed into, yeah, a motive. Because, yeah. you know, money wasn't enough. I, money power. <laughs> I mean, like, revenge. I mean, they... Bad guys play on bank heists all the time, and it got interrupted by this other guy, and there mm-hmm. you go. There's your motive. You know, yeah. uh, revenge against this guy who screwed screwed things over, uh, killed his partner, mm-hmm. and, you know, there was really no need for Nico. Uh, no. I just, I didn't see it. Um, Dorian, uh, he was just, yeah, cliche. There it is again. 90s mob guy. Um, 90s bad guy. Yeah, just falling into all the cliche routines. Like the fact that his crew, who were supposed to be robbing the bank, they didn't even get into the bank. They hadn't even gotten started when the mask leaves and the cops show up. And yeah. the first thing they do is start shooting at the cops. Like, of course, what <laughs> are you thinking? You haven't even done anything. <laughs> just walk away. And and of course. That's what gets the the one guy killed, and he's all upset about. It. I'm like, dude, your guy's screwed up. Okay, yeah. that's that's what happened there. So, I don't know. It's just it was uh, it was okay for what would be a cartoon villain. So, and since the movie was so very much cartoon style, I was okay with Dorian. Did you like the the dark mask, if you will? Uh, it was a little bit over the top for me. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, a, a nine would have been good. And, and, and I think they gave us a 15. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like, I'm, I'm fairly certain, like, 
Jim Carrey was the one wearing the mask, you know, in the, the green makeup and everything. But I'm fairly certain they swapped out the actor for Dorian when he put on the mask because yeah. the neck just got so bulky. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was just too much. And the, the voice, it I don't know, it became like some alien supervillain uh, once he put on that mask. So I don't know, I thought something a little less over the top would have been good for me. And, of course, we have to have the signature flaming red eyes, right? Just to let people know that he's evil. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, they, they actually light up. Yes. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you know, guys, can you, t- can you tone the red down there a little bit? Because, like, we get he is bad. We don't need the, the flaming red demonic eyes. But, uh, but I guess, you know, I, I kind of almost got thoughts of, like, Ghostbusters, too, when it came to that. It's like... This is very much a, almost like a demon, if you will, but uh, but it was very stereotypical. I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Peter Green, uh, as, as I mentioned, though, loving Tarantino and what he does in Pulp Fiction in the role of Zed. Granted, he doesn't get much in that in that film, but the way he plays it is perfect. And yeah, it's it, he is very much the, the, the stereotypical underling, I suppose, who wants to kind of do away with his boss and kind of become the king of the city. But, yeah, you probably could have not, you know, as much as I guess maybe you wanted Orestes Matasena to work in your film, you could have cut the guy out completely, made Dorian the kingpin, if you will, and who just wants to get bigger and bigger and bigger and and not had that whole thing. But I suppose, yeah, like you guys were pointing out, it gives him some motive of, you know, I want to kill my boss, kind of almost like the Joker in, in the 1989 Batman film, who wants to obviously take over the underworld, and that's probably his ultimate goal. But yeah, because you think this guy owns the Cocobongo, which is where a lot of the film takes place, but he's barely there. He's either playing golf, if you want to call it golf, in his office, and that's pretty much it. And yeah, yeah and, and when it comes to, to, uh, to Dorian's, uh, should we say, goons... I still have to think to myself, yeah, this is so 90s. The guy is dying. What do you do? You give him a cigarette. Of course. (laughs) You're like, this guy needs medical attention. Let's give him a cigarette. That will cure it all. Yeah, (laughs) don't you guys have a doctor on staff? Oh, wait, that was him. Oh, oh. Because he called himself the doctor. Well played. Well played, Christine. But yeah, I I just thought to myself, yeah, of course. Give him a cigarette. That will solve it. No problem. And in fact, and then he just pretty much dies on the table. But yeah, he he is he is that that's kind of very and, very cliche. But and yeah. I gotta say, what he was doing at the end, maybe the mask was driving him crazy really fast because I didn't understand why he wanted to blow up the club. Yeah, it, that it makes no sense. sense. Yeah. Like that's that's where you make a lot of money. That's where you do all your deals. What? Why? Why are we blowing it up? Are, uh, you, are you okay, man? Because it's <laughs> in the script. It's in the script. It's in the yes. script. It's kind of like that. I, I mean, either yes. I was actually thinking of that myself. I think either it's just a moment of madness or is this, or, or maybe, I don't know, to maybe try and look at it. Maybe it's a, it's a symbol of his boss of what his boss used to be. And he wants to eradicate that completely, but still it's a very profitable business. So it makes zero sense when it comes to that, but maybe just want to make this grand gesture of this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to blow up this club and everybody will be afraid of me because I've blown up this club. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the writing maybe here is a little bit questionable, but yeah, kudos to Peter Green for doing, for doing a great job with this character for what he was given. So moving on here, of course, this film does have quite a few 
song and dance numbers. And Christine, knowing how much of a fan you are of musicals, did you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, do do you have? Did you actually have any any favorite song or dance numbers in this? Well, I think technically there's only two. You know, there's well, there's a song number, then there's a song and dance, and then yeah. there's another song and dance. Yeah. So, um, I'd say that my favorite is Hey Pachuco because I am a sucker for swing dancing. I, I have gone out swing dancing i've learned some swing dancing and i love it and i love the fact that apparently jim carrey did his own dancing mm-hmm. mm. very much so i mean what did what did you make of cuban pete and of i guess the other one is um uh what is it ain't i good to you i think it is where yeah mm. what, what, what um, are your thoughts on those two well i do enjoy singing that song mm-hmm. uh unlike some actresses <laughs> <laughs> um ouch and uh but uh, I think yeah, her lip syncing was good because I didn't know that until recently that she wasn't singing. Um, and she she wasn't uh, just standing at the mic. She was really getting into it. So I liked her performance of that song. Um, and Cuban Pete um, is, a I say, a ensemble book number, uh, you know, something that you probably see in a old-fashioned you know, musical on stage, uh, get everybody involved. It's the, it's the big number, but... It's uh, it's not the one that stands out in your mind at the end. I mean, you remember it because everybody was in it. But I really, Hey Pachuca was my favorite. Uh, well, I you know as a drummer, I certainly can't blame you because that is so much fun to play on the drums. But uh, but more about that a little <laughs> bit later. In the, in the meantime, Joe, when it comes to you, when it comes to these three main uh, song and uh, song and dance numbers, what did you? What were your thoughts on those? Did you have a favorite? Um. I would have to say Cuban Pete was my favorite. Uh, it's just, it's it's the big one. I liked it. It's fun. Um, and also, Jim Carrey sang that one. It did a really good job, actually. Um, and I don't know. I just, I, I like it a little bit more just because it was the larger, more grand scale of it. Uh, but And your Christ- buddy Doyle wanted to get in on it. Oh, he did? I know. <laughs> so he couldn't dance, couldn't get his damn onion rings. What is he supposed to do? <laughs> Guy can't get a break. <laughs> Not a break. And and when it came to um to to the uh, to to Hey Pachuco, what were your thoughts on that one? It was a fun number. I do agree. Um, Although it, I have to say that trumpet was not actually using a plunger. Oh, that no. is not what that would have sounded like. <laughs> yeah, because folks, Christine actually tested this out. Apparently, is that right? Oh yeah, I took my trumpet out of the closet and. Uh, I, I have three mutes, and I am fairly certain uh, it will, and I'm not sure because I'm really not a, a connoisseur of mutes, but uh, I think more likely uh, the trumpet in that song is using a wah-wah mute, uh, mm-hmm. I think maybe also mm-hmm. called a harmon mute, I don't know, uh, but if you were waving a plunger mute around in front of your bell like that, it would waver, it wouldn't have a consistent sound, so they threw that in there because people think it looks cool when someone's using a plunger mute on a trumpet. <laughs> and also, it probably looks funny. You're like, oh, he's using a plunger. That's weird. It's cartoonish. Ha ha ha. Although <laughs> extremely common. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, there, there is a, an actual mute you can buy for the, the plunger sound, but most people just get an actual plunger because it's cheaper. There you go. I guess that's more practical. I, and, and, I, and actually, I was, I was curious about this, Joe, when it comes to musical stuff. I mean, were you a fan? Are you a fan of the whole swing, jazz, blues kind of stuff? I do enjoy the music, uh, swing, jazz, blues. It's not one of my top favorite things to listen to, but if it comes on, I definitely will listen to it, and I do enjoy it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And, and I probably uh, have to say Cuban Pete was probably my favorite. When it comes to at least the memorable stuff, at least as a kid, oh, I remember it was you. so, it was so sort of, I don't know, it just per- so it permeated my mind. And I remember even my brother and I, would actually kind of jam to Cuban Pete when we were younger and stuff. So it was it was great, great fun. But yeah, as a, from a drumming perspective, uh, Hey Pachuco is so much fun to play, folks. I actually uh, I actually got to learn the you know the drum patterns and everything else. And there were times when I was kind of practicing with my band and they were kind of out either smoking or whatever. And I would actually be doing be, be doing the drum pattern to it or the rhythm to it because it's just so much fun. And, and swing is such a great uh, genre, both, I think, to dance to, to, for the musicians performing it. It's just great, great, great fun for sure. So let's get then to ratings. Joe, when it comes to you, what do you give The Mask out of 10? Mm, I think I'm going to have to give this movie a 8 out of 10 sharpened pens. Uh, it's just, it's a wonderful movie. Um, I don't know if I would ever want to see another version of this being made, just because it probably wouldn't have Jim Carrey. It might not have the same energy. And really, this one, I think, at least for us 90s kids, uh, <laughs> is probably going to be the de facto version even if they were to make it with somebody else but overall it's a fun great movie definitely needs to be watched and don't take too seriously agreed and christine when it comes to you uh i also gave it an eight out of ten taz pillows which my mother used to own that same pillow Oh, I love that. And when we, I mean, if they actually did, when it, if you actually heard of a remake being done, would you be happy about that? Or do you think this needs to be the definitive version and they shouldn't touch it anymore? Well, I'm always willing to give a remake uh, a chance. Uh, my opinion is if I liked it the first time, I probably want more. And while you can watch the, mo- the movie again, I'd like to, you know, get a little more of the meal, you know, to ha- you have a favorite restaurant, maybe every once in a while try something different at that restaurant. So um, I'm, I'm okay with attempting to remake stuff. I always feel like like, like with a, a song cover, there, you know, it's a good idea to start with, but maybe you have a way to spice it, spice it up a little or modernize it a little bit, you know, to just take a different ch- uh, take on it. And mm-hmm. so I, I'd welcome it, but I, uh, I'd still be discerning about it. I'm wouldn't just you know go oh it's the mask i love it already i mean they do have a sequel that you could watch i know (laughs) enough said about that exactly we'll have to talk about son of the mask and i'm dreading that moment folks i'm really showing my hand there but you have to talk about it i have to talk none of the rest of us have to (laughs) exactly i have to find some uh, some unwilling victim to join me to discuss son of the mask i'm putting that out right now folks so if anybody feels brave enough to discuss son of the mask Welcome to join me. I, I, I'm actually going to give this also an 8 out of 10. I absolutely love, love, love this film. If they did make a remake, I'd be happy. I mean, I, if they did, like I suppose almost, uh, it makes me think of the Judge Dredd 
Dread remake, which was a completely different departure from that because obviously the Judge Dread film was much more, should we say, kitsch action, while the 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 late, later Dread version was much more true to the comics, and I absolutely love that version. And I and hopefully they do if they ever do decide to do something new with this, maybe we get the true to form from the comics, so much more of a darker psychological thing. Being a big fan of psychological thrillers, I think it would work so well as a superhero slash R-rated horror movie, which I think mm-hmm. would really work well. So hopefully, I mean, it's up for grabs. If uh, I suppose I'm not sure who owns the Dark Horse properties these days, but um, I guess we'll see what what happens with that. But yeah, it's definitely an well, I, I think I think what you're saying there is that this movie was a bit of a victim of the 90s, uh, mm-hmm. that the rated R uh, cartoonish comedy slash horror was just not something that would have been accepted in the 90s no exactly and i mean today of course you can get away with pretty much literally murder i suppose so. oh <laughs> and then some so i so saw i mean seeing obviously what we what we've had you know i mean i even think of later on things like the kick-ass movies which uh, yeah so extreme mm. for the time you, you could probably get away with doing the the mask proper if you will taking it from the comics and uh, i think it would, it would be for a, make for an interesting story so let's get to recommendations here did either of you have anything should we say mask related that you would like to uh, recommend folks well this is uh, not a comic book not made from a comic book but if you enjoyed watching this movie and you want something else to put on afterwards that's along the same vein i recommend and I'm sure you've already seen it. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, perfect. Very, very well said, Christine. Joe, did you have any recommendations in this sense? Uh, outside of recommending finding the comics? Not really. <laughs> Speaking actually of comics, folks, if you do want to find out the, and see the differences between this film and how Dark Horse does it, I would definitely suggest you check out the unholy trilogy of The Mask, The Mask Returns, and The Mask Strikes Back. Not the most original titles, I agree, but they are definitely wonderful, wonderful reads for sure, written by John Aracudi and Doug Mankey. They are very, it's very much dark stuff. If you enjoy stuff a la Boys, for example, or Deadpool, all things that are anything that is very psychological and very sort of... Uh, dark and and i suppose a little bit depressing you definitely will enjoy this great trilogy of the mask the mask returns and the mask strikes back and of course dear listeners if you want to join us here on the show and discuss a movie of your choice like the wonderful christine and joe feel free to shoot us an email at happiness and darkness how at gmail.com we really appreciate your thoughts and feedback about the show you can reach out to us also at happiness and darkness how at gmail.com feel free to show your support by giving us a like on facebook where you'll find us as happiness and darkness you can follow us on twitter we're at high darkness pod or on instagram under him darkness also if you'd like to support the podcast appealing generous you can check out the great tiers we have going on on patreon there you'll also be able to pick films to go outside of what are considered regular superhero movies or even films inspired by comics recently uh, one of our patrons ray joined us to discuss predator for example so of course you can you'll be able to pick stuff like predator so things even like 300 or road to perdition or i kill giants or aliens Definitely hoping somebody will pick Aliens eventually, Robocop, Terminator, and more. That's patreon.com slash happiness in darkness. And when it comes to the two of you, Christine, starting here with you, when you are not here joining us at uh, Happiness in Darkness, where can folks find you? 
Well, you can like my Facebook page. That's Christine Peruski. And uh, you can follow my podcasting exploits there uh, mm-hmm. since I jump around to everybody's podcast now. Um, or you can uh, follow me on Twitter at C underscore Peruski. And I post the same stuff there. Uh, that's really all I'm doing right now. But every once in a while, every once in a while, I will post something graphic art related on my Facebook page. Fabulous. And folks, I definitely suggest you check out uh, Christine's recent appearance on Drunk Cinema, where her and, uh, and our good friends Zan and Charles discussed Clue. So definitely check that out. It was, it's, I, I, can, I have to definitely say it was, so, it was hilarious and so entertaining. And, and did you play along with the drinking game at home? I have yet to do so. I'm actually going to replay it and actually play by the rules this time. Because <laughs> it, was, it was fabulous, fabulous stuff. And, uh, and Joe, when it comes to you, where can folks find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at ReusableCloth. Fantastic. When it comes to me, for you country music lovers, I do host the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more about that, you can visit our website, whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, feel free to also check out our latest project, Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where with Zan Sprouse and Rachel Friend, we're reviewing all the movies that won the Oscar for Best Picture from 1927's Wings to the Present Day. Up next, we'll be discussing From Here to Eternity, which is definitely going to be a fun discussion you can find us on facebook and twitter and speaking of charles skaggs him and i uh, you can find him and myself on uh, the fandom zone where we recently finished discussing jupiter's legacy and next week we'll be uh, taking on loki yes we're just going to be Yay. Exactly. Yay, indeed. Definitely looking forward to that for sure. Speaking of Loki. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Perfect, perfect segue there for sure. And actually, when it comes to things on this show, next week we'll be joined by Jeff to discuss the 2007 Kevin Monroe film TMNT. We just can't get rid of those turtles. That said, oh, <laughs> we, we've gone green. Team green exactly. all day. It is literally a green period over here at Happiness and Darkness. That said, of course, when it comes to you, Christine, when it comes to you, Joe, I want to, of course, thank you both so, so much for joining me today and definitely look forward to having you back here on Happiness and Darkness very soon. Happy to be here. And uh, we'll we'll be back again, hopefully soon, with another green character to, uh, to talk about. (laughs) <laughs> yes indeed you're definitely looking forward to that folks thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us we will see you next week with Jeff and TMNT until then stay super ciao my people Place my hand on your hip and if you will just give me your hand That we shall try, just you and I If you like the beat, take a little bit of human beat And I'll teach you to chick chicky boom chick chicky boom chick chicky boom